Welcome, everybody. Season two, episode 13 of Spiritual Psychotherapy. Very excited for this one. I'm actually going to uh, Joshua Tree on Thursday for my friend's bachelor party. So uh, I'm feeling like a uh, a pre-glow to, uh, to that fun trip. And Bezrat uh, Hashem, I'll bring back some, some spirituality from the West Coast next week. Uh, but before we do that, let's talk about this week. So we have uh, story time for everybody. I'm very excited to present a bunch of Zen stories from the famous Zen flesh, Zen bones. And I find a lot of these stories to be um, just very insightful. And uh, more than anything, they give you a good flavor of Zen um, and the flavor of that which your soul on some level already knows. Um, and it's kind of to help unlock that. But before we do some of those stories, I just wanted to say something from, you know, my life this week from, you know, I was talking to somebody about an issue that they were having. And I quoted them this story, a uh, famous story that I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, that one time there was an astronaut and the astronaut made his way up into space. And when he returned, they asked the astronaut, you know, famously, uh, did you see God while you were up there in space? And the astronaut said, I have seen God and she is black. <laughs> very, very obviously, you know, this is kind of like a shock factor, you know, not to be racist or sexist or anything. But, you know, very, you know, classically, when we hear about God, we probably picture for some reason, uh, for obvious reasons, a God, the father, you know, a male figure, probably white, you know, based on whatever cultural reasons. and. The interesting thing about this quote is that it flips that on its very head. And to say, I have seen God and she is black has a pretty deep meaning to it. If you think about it, like when you go up into space and you see the vast blackness of the universe in contrast with just, you know, that pale blue dot that is planet Earth. Um, I think it's it's very revealing because it shows you that what you conceived of as isness as being was only the positive element of things it was only the the male element of the yin and the yang but when you really open up your mind you start to realize that in reality um existence consists of the black and the white it exists of the male and the female the yin and the yang um so i was telling a friend of mine you know you can serve god with that which you lack now what do i mean by that you know, if you feel that you're lacking something in your life, um, very often this is a source of pain. And what I would say is this is a golden opportunity to say, hey, you know, this is the opening point, the entry point for a relationship between me and the Almighty. Because that which I am lacking is that which humbles me enough and forces me to be in a relationship with my Creator. Um, and I think that is just something that happens naturally. Uh, you know, when we reach a low point, that's when it is almost beckoning us back to God. And so often when we have something, we forget about God and we say, you know, oh, I'm good. You know, I don't need anything. And we just go about life as usual. But it's when we're forced to, to acknowledge that which we don't have the negative element of reality, the the feminine element in the sense of maybe chaos or the blackness 
that which is the vacuum. When we notice that, it's an invitation to connect with God and say, God, I want to worship you and serve you, um, not only in spite of, but because of that which I am lacking, because hen kaloti ma'ashiveka, as Iov said, behold, I am uh, now enlightened or lighter. And uh, what can I even respond to you, God? And there's a there's a tremendous humility in acknowledging that which we lack. So without any further ado, I'd like to read some Zen stories with you guys. And I think that these are a lot of fun because, like I said earlier, these are things that will just try to almost like a joke, you know, and when you when you're telling a joke, it's funny immediately. Um, it, it just spontaneously creates laughter. And if the joke needs to be explained, um, then the joke is not really a good joke, you know, unfortunately. And uh, I think th that's the same thing with a lot of these Zen stories, where uh, it's supposed to spontaneously give you some kind of flavor or experience of direct seeing. Um, and that's really all I'll say about it. Let's see what you guys feel when you hear these stories and just let them land on you as they land. The first one is called The Gates of Paradise. A soldier named Nobushige came to Hakuin and asked, Is there really a paradise and a hell? Who are you? inquired Hakuin. I am a samurai, the warrior replied. You a soldier? exclaimed Hakuin. What kind of ruler would have you as his guard? Your face looks like that of a beggar. Nobushige became so angry that he began to draw his sword. But Hakuin continued, So you have a sword. Your weapon is probably much too dull to cut off my head. As Nobushige drew his sword, Hakuin remarked, Here open the gates of hell. At these words, the samurai, perceiving the master's discipline, sheathed his sword and bowed. Here open the gates of paradise, said Hakuin. I really love this story because the question was, is there really a paradise and a hell? And without answering in an abstract way, Hakuin allows the soldier to get a direct looking into his own nature, just based on these very fickle emotions that take over and the actions that ensue. And based on that, you can see the opening to both heaven and to hell. And, you know, they say in the song, oh, heaven is a place on earth. Well, I'll tell you something, hell is too. Um, but just having that insight into one's own nature is invaluable in understanding the opening to those two things. The next story is called Gudo and the Emperor. The Emperor Goyose was studying Zen under Gudo. He inquired, in Zen, this very mind is Buddha. Is that correct? Gudo answered, if I say yes, you will think that you understand without understanding. If I say no, I would be contradicting a fact which many understand quite well. On another day, the emperor asked Gudo, where does the enlightened man go when he dies? Gudo answered, I know not. Why don't you know, asked the emperor, because I have not died yet, 
replied Gudel. The emperor hesitated to inquire further about these things. His mind could not grasp. So Gudel beat the floor with his hand as if to awaken him. And the emperor was enlightened. The emperor respected Zen and old Gudel more than ever after his enlightenment and he even permitted Gudel to wear his hat in the palace in winter. When Gudel was over 80, he used to fall asleep in the midst of his lecture and the emperor would quietly retire to another room so his beloved teacher might enjoy the rest of his aging body, the rest that his aging body required. So again, we have another example of somebody asking a philosophical abstract question about Zen. And the answer given to them is, well, I can't say yes and I can't say no. What's funny is, you know, I had a patient the other day in uh, Lenox Hill on the psych ward, of course. And the patient asks me, she looks at me, she says, are you Jesus? And I told her, I'm not going to say yes and I'm not going to say no. <laughs> and I didn't say it exactly like that. I kind of said, well, I don't think so. Um, but in a sense, the answer is, of course, no, uh, because that was some other dude. <laughs> but at the same time, um, if her perception of Jesus is everything, everywhere, all at once, and that's her conception of God, then for me to say, no, I'm not Jesus, uh, would be incorrect. So, uh, you know, I didn't have to play this Zen game with her, but, uh, you know, it, it was kind of fun. And uh, I think she appreciated that. Um, but, yeah, you know, if somebody asks you, are you God? You can say, I can't say yes and I can't say no. Not in the egotistical sense. But just in the sense that if you say yes, you're, of, of, of course, a tremendous egotist. And if you say no, then that might be phony humility because in some sense you are part of God. So the answer is not yes and not no. I, I must sound a little bit crazy to some of you at this point. If you'd like, you can call uh, some services to have me admitted to your nearest psych ward as well. Next story. This one's called The Silent Temple. Shochi was a one-eyed teacher of Zen, sparkling with enlightenment. He taught his disciple in Tofuku Temple. Day and night, the whole temple stood in silence. There was no sound at all. Even the reciting of sutras was abolished by the teacher. His pupils had nothing to do but meditate. What the master when the master passed away, an old neighbor heard the ringing of bells and the recitation of sutras. Then she knew Shoichi had gone. So, the value of silence and the irony of me being here, breaking that silence. Well, like I always say, this is not just spiritual psychotherapy for you. It's very much my own spiritual psychotherapy and i have roped all of you in to doing free therapy for me so thank you very much for doing that for me uh but uh yeah in all sincerity um real zen happens in silence the silence of this moment um and that's why this man shoichi kind of had it right when uh they they just abolished all of these different recitations and these different things because that's not what Zen is about. 
Zen is not about repetition of sutras and, and all of that. It's about direct noticing and being a Buddha. Um, and just meditating on that. But of course, when he passes away, people go right back to their old habits and their old traditions. And that's part of the Tao as well. That's totally fine. Uh, but this one guy really kind of had the right idea. Uh, and of course, when they heard the noise again, they said, okay, that's it. That Shoichi, he's gone. Because we know his style was just total silence. Um, this next story is called One Note of Zen. After Kakua visited, visited the emperor, he disappeared and no one knew what became of him. He was the first Japanese to study Zen in China. But since he showed nothing of it, save one note, he is not remembered for having brought Zen into his country. Kakua visited China and accepted the true teaching. He did not travel while he was there. Meditating constantly, he lived on a remote part of a mountain. Whenever people found him and asked him to preach, he would say a few words and then move to another part of the mountain where he could be found less easily. The emperor heard about Kakua when he returned to Japan and asked him to preach Zen for his edification and that of his subjects. Kakua stood before the emperor in silence. He then produced a flute from the folds of his robe and blew one short note. Bowing politely, he disappeared. That's Zen. That's a person who embodies Zen. Somebody who is not interested in the fanfare, not interested in making a podcast about it, that's for sure. <laughs> He's not interested in necessarily even educating people um, because in Zen, very you know, there's, there's no goals per se. Um, there is no one to be educated and uh, the world is not in need of some kind of tremendous reform or spiritual upturn. That's not what Zen is about. But if you press a Zen master and you ask them to tell the truth about Zen, they'll tell you the truth about Zen by being silent, and by just simply playing one note from their flute. Next one is called A Letter to a Dying Man. Basui wrote the following letter to one of his disciples who was about to die. The essence of your mind is not born, so it will never die. It is not an existence, which is perishable. It is not an emptiness, which is a mere void. It has neither color nor form. It enjoys no pleasures and suffers no pain. I know you are very ill. Like a good Zen student, you are facing that sickness squarely. You may not know exactly who is suffering, but question yourself. What is the essence of this mind? Think only of this. You will need no more. Covet nothing. Your end, which is endless, is as a snowflake dissolving in the pure air. This is a really poignant story, uh, I think, because, you know, if you've ever had time to spend with someone who is in the dying process, um, it's really a tremendous 
tremendous zikhut, and it's a real opportunity um, to sit in holiness with somebody, to sit in whatever's coming up for them. And um, I think that's not an opportunity to let pass because um, there's something about the dying process which really brings about a lot of truth um, just in the experience of it. And um, if you get the opportunity, I think, you know, it's if you can handle it, to be with that person, you know, so I remember as a medical student being in the VA and um, there was this Chinese man who was dying of hepatocellular carcinoma, you know, basically liver cancer. And, you know, I would sit there, you know, they, they knew that I was going into psychiatry, so I wasn't interested so much in uh, the, the pure internal medicine of it. But so I would see my patients, and then I would go chill with this guy and he knew he was dying. Um, and unfortunately, his wife had breast cancer, but I think she might have been recovering. But he knew that he was really a, a terminal case. And I really savored the opportunity to sit with this man as he was looking back at his life. And um, there was such a tremendous timimut and, and almost just wholesomeness to sitting with this man. And, I, you know, I'll never forget the story that he told me. Um, he said, you know, when he first met his wife, um, I, I mean, at the time, obviously she was just some girl and he really kind of fell in love pretty quickly. And he, he asked her out and she said, no. And he said, why not? And he said, and she said, you smoke and you drink. And why would I go out with you? And he starts crying at this point And he said, I gave up smoking and I gave up drinking just for her. And he said, and I was able to build this beautiful life with her and have children. And, you know, I started tearing up. I'm crying. He's crying. And we're just sitting there. And there, there's such a specialness to sitting there with somebody in their dying process and, and the meaning that they make of their life. But, you know, with some of the, the Zen training that we, we do by reading and, and studying and understanding, it's really an opportunity to help see somebody off to the next shore, I think. And um, this experience of helping, you know, lead somebody across that shore is, is extremely unbelievable. That's really the only thing I can say about it. And um, you help somebody let go. And this, this story here, you know, listen to the advice that's being given uh, to the dying man. First, he Basui is is basically telling him about the essence of mind. It's not it's not something that's ever born. It's not something that can ever die. It's not an existence which is perishable. It's also not an emptiness. So you can't call it existence. You can't call it emptiness. It's non-dual. Um, it, it's it has no color, no form. It has no pleasures or pain. Right. The real essence of who you are is not something that can die. Because it's not something that was ever born, and it's not something that enjoys pleasure or pain or rejects pain. Um, and he says to him, um, "If you just focus on this one question of what is the essence of my mind, think thinking solely about this one pointedly about this question of what is the essence of my mind, uh, this will lead you directly towards that mind." And, um, yeah, I think I think it's a very beautiful opportunity. You know, there's a lot of Zen 
um, hospice centers out there because, um, you know, when somebody's in that dying process, Zen is really almost the perfect thing for them uh, in terms of letting go. And I think that's why, you know, in terms of uh, terminal cancer patients who are really just extremely depressed, um, these are individuals who benefit a tremendous amount from psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Uh, and I think that there's, there's even been studies of uh, doing the psychedelics along with their loved ones. And people who were so terrified of death, who had tremendous anxiety and depression about their own death on the verge of, you know, a horrible, you know, cancer death, um, are able to find tremendous solace in this mystical experience. And they say, no longer do I see myself as a separate entity, you know, uh, who is alive separately from the rest of the universe. Instead, I see my life as one note in this grand symphony of existence. And because my life is this one note, I know that the real me cannot die. Um, and that is something that provides tremendous, tremendous peace to both the people dying and to their loved ones. And uh, I think that's just a very special thing that hopefully the future of uh, psychiatry may may hold the keys to, in the West at least. So the next one is called the tunnel. Zenkai, the son of a samurai, journeyed to Edo and there became the retainer of a high official. He fell in love with the official's wife and was discovered. In self-defense, he slew the official. Then he ran away with the wife. Both of them later became thieves. But the woman was so greedy that Zenkai grew disgusted. Finally leaving her, he journeyed far away to the province of Buzen, where he became a wandering mendicant. To atone for his past, Zenkai resolved to accomplish some good deed in his lifetime. Knowing of a dangerous road over a cliff that had caused the death and injury of many persons, he resolved to cut a tunnel through the mountains there. Begging food in the daytime, Zenkai worked at night digging his tunnel. When 30 years had gone by, the tunnel was 2,280 feet long, 20 feet high, and 30 feet wide. Two years before the work was completed, the son of the official he had slain, who was a skillful swordsman, found Zenkai out and came to kill him in revenge. I will give you my life willingly, said Zenkai. Only let me finish this work. On the day it is completed, then you may kill me. So the son awaited the day. Several months passed, and Zenkai kept on digging. The son grew tired of not doing nothing and began to help with the digging. After he had helped for more than a year, he came to admire Zenkai's strong will and character. At last, the tunnel was completed, and the people could use it and travel in safety. Now cut off my head, said Zenkai. My work is done. How can I cut off my own teacher's head? Asked the young man with tears in his eyes. I think this story is quite beautiful because it shows you, you know, for, for on the one hand, um, 
you know, first off, the idea of a person being able to change the tune of their lives, you know, and, and uh, when when somebody is, you know, leaves behind, uh, uh, of course, you know, a murder and tries to, you know, uh, do some kind of tikkun for that, some kind of reparation, uh, that's a very powerful thing. But at the same time, uh, the brilliance of Zenkai, you know, just the sheer intelligence of it, where he says to this guy, all right, just, just you know, you know, just let me finish this project. Uh, this is an altruistic project of mine. Once I do that, then you can kill me and avenge the blood of your father. Um, and then, of course, this guy helps him and ends up admiring him at the end. And, um, you know, you can separate that from your notion of like, how can you forgive the murderer of your father? That's a separate question. Uh, but just that idea that things are not always set in stone. They're not absolute uh, and they can change. And, um, you know, it's, it, the, the fact that this, even the son of the guy that he that he killed was able to learn from him. Um, and the fact that at the end of the day, uh, this man became the teacher of that guy. Well, that's that's something pretty incredible. Um, we have a question from uh, Mr. Yossi. Uh, he said, in my life, I have heard two people from Asian culture received news of their coming immediate impending death and the equanimity and stoicism was remarkable. Yeah, man, I think uh, that's that's part of this is, um, you know, one's own death. And if you've really gotten to a place where you're not clinging to life, um, life and death become less of a serious thing um, and they become something that you can flow into and out of more easily. Um, and in Alan Watts's words, you become less sticky. And I think there's a lot of value in being less sticky in this lifetime. Uh, you, you stop sticking to uh, that which feels good or our life and you stop um, pushing away uh, or holding on to trauma uh, or pushing away um, difficulties. So we can transition a little bit now into Alan Watts, continuing with some of his stuff about wisdom of the fool, wisdom of the ridiculous. Uh, we were talking last time we left off. He said, just as you can't get away from now, you can't get out of the Tao. Uh, so that's the humor of the whole thing, he says. And that's why Zhuang Zhao has this beautiful light touch. So Zhuang Zhao says, the heron is white without a daily bath. The crow is black without being painted in ink. And this is the same saying, you know, as in Zen, in the spring landscape, there is nothing superior, nothing inferior. Flowering branches grow naturally, some short, some long. It's just as things are. The, the, the whiteness of the heron doesn't need to bathe before it hits your retina. And the same goes for the black of the crow. It just immediately is in its grand being as you encounter it. Um, or as they say, uh, a long thing is the long body of Buddha. A short thing is the short body of Buddha. There are therefore, you see, blondes and brunettes, fat people and skinny people, tall people and short people, cultured people and vulgar people. Right. So you don't need to judge all the time. You know, I, I try I really try to practice this 
without trying, of course, <laughs> effortless effort, when I'm on the subway. You know, you're sitting on the subway. Some people, you know, look a certain way. Some people look a different way. Um, and they're all just on the subway. And the subway car is just chugging along, chugging along. And I'm just sitting there. Um, and I'm trying to just see as it is without judgment, without deeming things as good or bad or pleasant or unpleasant things simply are people just are in all of their glory even a christian hymn says the rich man in his castle the poor man at his gate god made them high and lowly and ordered their estate all right so this is trying to express the same idea but more in a more christian and western sense um the the rich man is just rich as he is the poor man simply poor as he is um god made them this way that's just how they are um you know uh and and it's the same thing as saying you know for some reason with people uh we complicate things and we say you know we add a whole tinge of morality and i'm not saying we shouldn't do that of course that is also part of the dal but i think there is a very tremendous benefit to being able to step out of the continuous insistence of morality of things and instead being able to just see things as they are in their immediacy. So as I sit here, I can say the tissue box on the table, the blueness of the seats and the tablecloth, ah, Baruch Abba. in real time, we have the man himself, David Ben-Dayan, Baruch Abba. <laughs> Um, uh, so, and, and, uh, as David walks in, I don't have to, to judge. I can just say David walks in, <laughs> right? It's the same thing. But, you know, once we stop giving a, a moral flavor and a moral twinge to everything, we can just sit with things as they are. And I think that is in a way the diamond that cuts through illusion. That is the ability to see things in their clarity that's Moshe Rabbeinu his polished uh, lens and just seeing all of reality from creation until this very moment exactly as it is from God's eyes almost um, as they say you know Hashem says to Moshe Moshe says Had any not kevodech, Hashem I want to see your glory and God says Ani a'avir kol tuvi al panecha I'm going to pass by all of my goodness upon your face. And the Hachamim say very famously, Dr. Dr. Nasi, you know what they say? What's the first time in the whole Torah that we hear the word tov? Of course, when Hashem creates light and darkness. And say it again? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yes. So, so the Hachamim make a pretty brilliant statement when, and they say, so what is the glory of God? that is shown to Moshe when he's in this little crevice in the rock. The glory of God is everything from that moment until Moshe is standing there. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So it's everything from the Big Bang until that moment, from God's eyes. And people who have smoked DMT will tell you that their experience is exactly that, right? Where they experience the entire Big Bang from that moment up until this one. Simply as it is well for the first part is actually a little bit more terrifying than, than that they'll say well first i saw everything that is right now being stripped away 
every single thing in reality strips away and dies. And that's what they call maybe the big crunch. Back to the singularity, back to the, the nothingness. And then from there, boom, it all gets recreated again up until this moment. That's the DMT experience, apparently. I know it's apparently going to scare the, the fear of God into you. Uh, because every moment contains all of that. Um, and we're going to see some more. From, I, I can't wait to continue reading this Alan Watts because I was reading it earlier and I was like, holy cow, this is really something. Uh, so let's keep reading. He says, you know, we don't sing that now because you've got too much social conscience. Um, I think I probably read that this passage yesterday, but you see, Zhuang Zhao has this to say about it. Right? So, so Alan Watts is saying, we don't sing that Christian hymn anymore. Because we have too much of this moral sociality as as part of us about the poor and the rich, and we don't want to, you know, <clears throat> that they are as they are simply, and that's it. Because we want to fix the poor and we want to fix the rich, and that's where we're constantly trying to even things up. So, what does Zhuang Zhao say about it? He says, "Those who say that they would have right without its carlet wrong, or good government without its carlet misrule." Do not apprehend the great principles of the universe, nor the nature of all creation. One might as well talk of the existence of heaven without that of earth, or of the negative principle yin without the positive yank, which is clearly impossible. Yet people keep on discussing it without stop. Such people must be either fools or knaves. <clears throat> Right, so his point here is you have to have one and the other simultaneously. You can't have one without the other. It's the same truth all over and over and over again. Every inside has an outside. Every masculine has a feminine. Every positive has a negative. There would be no such thing as positive one million unless there was also negative one million. And of course, one could always reply to Zhuang Zhao that there have to be fools and knaves so that we can recognize the existence of sages, right? So you can call them fools and knaves, but at the same time, we can't even judge them. We can't judge anything or anybody because it all just kind of is, and the, the existence of one provides for the existence of the other. Hence, I say this emanates from that. That also derives from this. This is the story, the theory of the interdependence of this and that, as they call it in Zen, Jiji Muge, which means this arises and that arises, right? It's it's mutual interdependence and co-arising. Um, as as uh, Thich Nhat Hanh would say, it's called interbeing. We inter-are. I cannot be unless you are, and vice versa. And I cannot be the way I am unless the rest of the universe is exactly as it was leading up to my existence. And the same thing for all of you. Nevertheless, life arises from death and vice versa. Possibility arises from impossibility and vice versa. Affirmation is based upon denial and vice versa. Which being the true case, the sage rejects all distinctions and takes his refuge in heaven. <clears throat> One may base it on this, yet this is also that. And that is also this. This also has its right and wrong, and that has its right and wrong. Does then the distinction between this and that really exist or not? 
when this, the subjective and that, the objective, are both without their correlates, that is the very axis of Tao. And when that axis passes through the center at which all infinites converge, affirmations and denials alike blend into the infinite one. Hence it is said that there is nothing like using the light. I'm not even going to try to put that into words because I think it's so beautifully spoken uh, that, well, I can try a little bit, but it's like the, <laughs> the distinctions that we conceive of normally fall away. That's really the most I can say once you really start to get into the Tao as it is. And you allow the positiveness, the masculine element of reality, which conceives, uh, which uh, which is constituted by everything in front of your eyes and that you perceive, and also all the negative space behind your eyes, the nothing, if you will, the yesh and the ayin, the masculine and the feminine. Um, See the axis of the opposites is the perception of their polarity. The difference between them is explicit, but their unity, the unity of them is implicit. The explicit difference between the two ends of a stick, but the implicit unity that they are ends of the same stick, you see? So that's the axis. The axis of Tao is, you might call it the secret conspiracy that lies between all poles and all opposites which is implicit, esoteric, or whatever you want to call it, that they're fundamentally one. So that unity, whether it's between you and the universe, or whatever polarity you want to take, is not something that has to be brought into being. This is the key. This was what I was looking so much forward to, to talking to you about. So the unity is not something that you need to put effort into bringing about. So he says, if one brings it into being, yani using effort, one assumes that it doesn't already exist. That's called in Zen, putting legs on a snake or a beard on a eunuch. There's something unnecessary, you see? So it exists. It is always there. And you can see it so vividly. And actually almost Put your finger on it. And if you understand that the movement of the Tao is exactly the same thing as the present moment. This present moment is the confluence of opposites. And there is no effort needed. Just to notice that this moment is made of that confluence. And I can sp keep speaking. But in the negative space between my words, you can notice the confluence of opposites bringing this moment into being. And there's nothing you have to do. Just do less. Just notice. Now, of course, if you try to grab the present moment and get ready, get ready with your clapper and say, now, it's gone. 
the finer and finer you draw the hairline on the watch, so you know exactly when now is, you eventually get to the point where you can't see now at all. See? But if you leave it alone, and you don't try to grab the moment as it flies, well, it's always there. See? You don't have to mark it. You don't have to put your finger on it. Because it's everything that there is. And so the present moment suddenly expands. And it contains the whole of time. All past. <coughs> all future. Everything. You never have to hold on to it. You just have to notice the Tao in this moment. That's it. I really, really like that because to me, that's like a very fresh way of stating what mindfulness is. Mindfulness without added effort. Mindfulness in its, in its purity. Without thinking that you need to do anything or accomplish anything. Or attain something. And that's why we have the wisdom of dialectics. Especially in the Prajna Paramita. In the, um, the diamond that cuts through illusion. The diamond sutra. And the conversation between the Buddha and his student. Um, and I highly recommend Thich Nhat Hanh's book about it. It's really incredible. It's called The Diamond That Cuts Through Illusion. Um, and he says that this dialectical speak. Where the Buddha will state. On the one hand, that absolute enlightenment exists. But once you get there, you realize there was nothing to attain and no one to attain it. And only for that reason can we call it the attainment of enlightenment. Because we know all along that there was nothing to attain and no one to attain it. Like I quote every week. A path there is, but no one who travels. Suffering exists, but no one who suffers. Enlightenment exists, but no one who attains it. And the more you are reminded of this, the more you can just walk that path. I'm really loving this. I'm feeling. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it tonight. I'll be very honest. Um, so, uh, if you if you'd like, we can now jump to the Zohar. Unless anybody has any any questions, which uh, if you if you want to. Have a good laugh. You can ask me a question about this, but there's no satisfactory answer I can even give you. Um, but yeah, without further ado, we can just jump to the Zohar. So we left off last time uh, quoting um, this idea of the tree of life and the Etz Haddad, Etz Haim, and where they lie on the um, Sefirot. But now we see a new uh, section to this. That's really beautiful. The Bishimon, of course, the Bishimon, Bari Ohai, was sitting engaged in Torah on the night when the bride is joined with her husband. This is talking about Friday night. <laughs> the night of actually Shavuot, believe it or not. Uh... Even more special. Right? So they say every single night, they say, Shekhinah, which is represented by the oral Torah, right? The Torah Shebe'al Peh, 
and tiferet, which is like the Torah shebichtav, um, and that's of course like the male element, the written Torah. Every single night, you know, the uh, sorry, sorry, once a year they they get fully married, but every single night they there is like an adornment of shechinah from hatzot halayla till the end of the night. But on Shavuot, it's like this special thing where it's it's the entire night. Even before Hatzot, Alayla, there's the adornment of Shekhinah by these Havraya, as we'll see, by its companions. Um, and we'll see what that means. For we have learned all those companions initiated into the bridal palace need on that night when the bride is destined to uh, the next day to be under the canopy with her husband, to be with her all night. So this is a special night. Delighting with her in her adornments in which she is arrayed, engaging in Torah from Torah to prophets, from prophets to writings, midrashic renderings of verses and mysteries of wisdom. These are her adornments and finery. So Shekhinah is portrayed here as having this whole posse of different companions that are there to accompany her into the marriage ceremony with her husband, who is Tif Eret. Um, and of course, this is a metaphor for the Limud Torah, which I think is so beautiful, which is that there's so many ways of adorning the Torah, with Torah Sheba'apeh and all the different ways of learning Torah Sheba'apeh. And those are all like different types of adornments. And when you are able to marry the written word to the spoken word, you're taking that which is almost like dead and giving it life. You're taking the sperm, in a way, I think, of the written Torah, which will die and have nothing unless it's housed in the actualization, which is the egg, which is the womb, bringing forth life. And that's what happens once a year on Shavuot. Um, and we have Tiferet and Shekhinah. Uh, and the word tikkun could be like mending, restoring, correcting, perfecting. Um, and I love this this midrash because we're talking about uh, you know from Torah to Nevi'im to Ketuvim. There's a story in Vaikra Rabbah in the midrash that says uh, Ben Azai. By the way, Ben Azai was one of those four rabbis who ventured into paradise. And it says Ben Azai hesitz vamet. Ben Azai was the one who looked and died just as a background to who he ends up becoming. So Ben Azai was sitting and expounding, and fire was blazing around him. They, his disciples, came and told Rabbi Akiva, and by the way, Rabbi Akiva was the guru of that story, uh, of the Arba Anich Nesuba Parides, of the four who ventured into paradise, and he was the one who, who was Yatsa Shalom. He was the only one that left in peace, didn't die, didn't go psychotic, and didn't go off the derech. Um, so they see Ben Azai is basically lighting on fire everything around him by his limudim. And they ran and told Rabbi Akiva about this. He went to him and said, perhaps you are engaged in the chambers of the chariot, the secrets of Ezekiel's vision of the chariot, right? So Rabbi Akiva is telling to Ben Azai, you must be learning Ma'aseh Merkava. You must be learning the deepest mystical teachings. And Ben Azai replies, No, I am stringing words of Torah to the prophets and words of the prophets to the writings 
And the words of Torah are as joyous as on the day they were given from Sinai. And this was such a powerful exercise. The intertextuality, which we love to do here in Sephardic, which, you know, my teacher Ronnie Benin and Rabbi Foreman loves to do it. And all these different scholars love to do this. The intertext, especially between Torah and Nevi'im and Ketuvim. So you'll read about Haron Kohen and his two children, right? Nadab and Avihu. And then you'll read in Nevi'im and Shemuel about Eliyah Kohen, my ancestor, because I'm Tawil, my mom is Tawil, Eliyah Kohen. You'll read about Eli and his two children, Hofni and Pinehas. And you'll see all the connections between the story of Aharon and his children and Eliyah Kohen and his children. And you'll it'll you'll be lit up with fire because it's as if the Torah is being given anew, and that's the power of intertextuality. Um, all right. So, and these are this is all the adornments and finery. Um, and Resh Lakish says in Shira Shinim Nabah, just as a bride is adorned with twenty four ornaments and lacking one of them, she's considered worthless. So a disciple must be fluent in all twenty four books. All right. So you need to know all the the books of Tanakh on your fingertips. To not be considered "quote unquote" worthless, don't take it too personally, because nobody and you know, I, none of us probably have that. But the point being, in order to really learn Tanakh, you need to know all of Tanakh as a whole. So now we're going to get a little bit more hebejibi. Uh, she enters, escorted by her maidens, standing above their heads, adorned by them. She rejoices with them the whole night. The next day, she enters the canopy only with them. And they are called members of the canopy. As soon as she enters the canopy, HaKadosh Baruch Hu inquires about them, blesses them, and crowns them with bridal crowns. Happy is their share. Right? So it's as if on this night, all of these uh, companions who are like attending angels to Shekhinah, they're all invited to the wedding party. In the, which is really what this rabbinic phrase means. This is like a, a wedding party for Shekhinah marrying Tif'eret. Um, and here we're going to see a little bit more about this. Rabbi Shimon and all the companions were singing the song of Torah. So all of this was kind of like an introduction to tell you Rabbi Shimon elevated himself meditatively to such a level where he met the companions of Shekhinah on that night of Shavuot. So imagine you could be sitting around the table with Rabbi Shimon, and he elevates you to the plane where you he you personify the companions of Shekhinah the night before their mar- the, the marriage of Shekhinah to Tiferet. It's really some unbelievable experience that Rabbi Shimon is having. And listen to this. Rabbi Shimon and all the companions were singing the song of Torah. We know from the very end of the Torah, right? From Shirat Ha'azinu, it says, Kitbu et hazot. Write down this song. And the Hachamim say, not just Shirat Ta'azinu, but the entire Torah is a song and should be learned as such. And that fits very beautifully with, with what a lot, a lot of us are talking about in these past few classes, where we're talking about reality should not be seen necessarily as a journey, but more like a song or like a dance. And Torah is like a song. And that's why the Hachamim say, what's more important? The learning of Torah or the doing of the actions of Torah. And they say, really learning Torah because it allows you to perform more. Well, there's something you know cryptic like that. And the point being 
just the, the learning of Torah Lishma. And that's the same thing as listening to a song for its own sake. You're not listening to the song for the sake of something else. You're listening to the song because you enjoy the song. We're learning Torah right now because we enjoy learning learning Torah. All right, so they're singing the song of Torah, innovating words of Torah, each one of them. The Bishamon and all the other companions rejoiced. So this is really such a beautiful thing. The Bishamon said, my children, happy is your share. For tomorrow the bride will enter the canopy only with you. For all those arranging her adornments tonight, rejoicing with her, will be recorded and inscribed in the book of memory. Right? And that's the, the book of memory is like the celestial book in which all human actions are recorded. Um, and it's going to be identified as Yesod later in this passage. So everything is going to be inscribed in Yesod. All of your actions are going to be inscribed in Yesod. And we're going to see the importance of Yesod, of the, the divine phallus of the Brit Milah in all of this. HaKadosh Baruch Hu blesses them with 70 blessings, which corresponds to each one of the seven sefirot from Chesed down to Shekhinah and crowns of the supernatural world, supernal world. So Rabbi Shimon is clearly tapping into some kind of unbelievable meditation here of the sefirot and of the way that Shekhinah is adorned by these different things the night before her marriage to Tiferet on Shavuot. Rabbi Shimon patach ve'amar, Bishamon opened saying, Heavens declare the glory of God. We have already established this verse, right? So this is from Tehilim. We already spoke about Hashemai Misapenim Kevod El. It's cited very frequently in rabbinic literature. Um, but at this time, when the bride is aroused to enter the canopy the next day, she is arrayed and illumined with her adornments together with the companions rejoicing with her the, that whole night while she rejoices with them. The following day, countless troops, soldiers, and camps assemble with her, and she waits together with all of them for each and every one who adorned her that night. All right, so it's a, this tremendous party. It's like painting this picture of a wedding almost. As soon as they join together and she sees her husband, what is written? All right, so as soon as Shekhinah, the Torah Shebe'al Peh, witnesses her husband, Tiferet, who is Torah Shebechtav. What does it say? The pasuk that emerges from the unity of Shekhinah and Tiferet is Hashamay Misaperim Kevod El. Which I think kind of means that at the moment of creation, at the moment of the joining of the masculine and the feminine, is this immediate creation of the heavens and a natural, immediate byproduct of that is the absolute glory of God. The glory of God is part and parcel of the immediacy of creation. It's not something you have to talk about creation. No, no, no. Creation itself is the glory of God. So let's see what this means. We're going to say something really beautiful here. Heaven, Hashamayim. The groom entering the canopy, right? The groom, this is Tiferet, is known as Shamaim. And if you look in that in that pedic of Tehilim, it says, The sun is like a groom coming forth from his chamber. So here they're comparing the sky to the groom. What does Lesaper mean? To declare, to recount. 
sparkles with the radiance of sapir. They're they're interpreting this a little differently, and this is really beautiful. Dr. Nasser, you probably know from what we've discussed in previous weeks, when B'nai Israel, the, the elders, were standing on Har Sinai, and it says, and it makes this distinction between them and Moshe, right? These people ate and drank, and God did not smite them, and Moshe, as opposed to them, did not eat and drink for 40 days and 40 nights. But when it says, et Yisrael, they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet was like a sapphire brickwork. And it looked like the purity of the heavens in its vastness, and its fullness. So the word sapir here, by the way, also appears in Gan Eden. Nofech sapir v'yehalom, also in the Hoshen. I believe in Gan Eden as well. I'm not, I, I might be wrong. Sorry, it's not in it's not in Gan Eden. It's in the Hoshen. That's where it's at. And also in this mystical vision. So they're interpreting here, misaperim, to be sapir, to be sapphire, sparkling and radiating from one end of the universe to the other. Isn't that amazing? Where else in the Zohar did we encounter that exact phrase of radiating from one end of the universe to the other? When they talk about the or haganuz la sadikim, the the light that is hidden away to the righteous, right? The light of the first day of creation, which transcends space, which you look into it and you can see from one end of the universe to the other. Meaning, if you have seen that light, you have seen that space is an illusion. And that's what this experience of when you really get a glimpse of that of the real sapphire blue of the sky, you can see that space is an illusion. And that really from one end of the universe to the other is all just the glory of God. The glory of God, glory of the bride who is called God. Right? So, Kevod El, Shamaim is Tiferet, and Kevod El really is Shekhinah. God rages every day. Um, every day of the year she's called God, but now that she has entered the canopy, she's called glory as well as God. Glory upon glory, radiance upon radiance, dominion upon dominion, right? So now Shekhinah, when she joins with Tiferet, is now called not just El, but now Kevod El. And it's Hashamayim Mesaperim Kevod El. So Tiferet is illuminating Shekhinah. The male is illuminating the female. Then at the moment when heaven enters the canopy, coming to illumine her, all those companions who adorned her are designated there by name, as is written. The sky proclaims the work of his hands. The work of his hands, right? And that's the second part of the pasuk. Um, yadav magid that's talking about all the adornments that were part of creating Shekhinah as what it is. And by the way, you want to hear a little secret? I think this is talking about every person that has ever engaged in Torah. I think when it's talking about the companions of Torah, it's saying any person who brought Torah to life. So all of us, what we're doing, when we read the, the words of Torah Shebikhtav, we are engraved in the book of creation, of the book of reality. We're engraved in Yesod because now we are part of these uh, companions of Torah who brought Shekhinah to life to the degree where now she can be illumined by 
Tiferet. The work of his hands, masters of the covenant with the bride, her partners, right? And they have to be masters of the covenant. They have to be people of sexual purity who did not abuse the berit milah, the, the covenant of the milah. Those masters of the covenant are called the work of his hands, as is said, the work of our hands, establish it. This is the covenant sealed in a man's flesh. So the same way that this is a joining of the masculine and the feminine, right? And we have Abraham's circumcision is compared to marrying the king's daughter in Lech Lechan, the Tanhuma, uh, the expression Mare Kayama de Brit, masters of the oath of the covenant. It's talking all about circumcision and leading holy sexual lives. Why is this so important? Because a huge part of being a human being is this energy that we have, this especially sexual energy, but it's just energy. It's just kundalini that we all have possessing us. And if you use that energy and you if you become addicted to the abuse of it for just chasing pleasures, there's no way that that kundalini or that energy can be used to really unlock these heavenly gates. But if you are pure with your circumcision, with your berit, I think it makes all the sense in the world that that energy that you have can be used not in an addiction, not in this snowball cycle effect where you just keep going into pleasure for pleasure's sake. But now you can almost unlock that energy to be used for the sake of holy meditation. Um, and I think that's very powerful, you know, even to the degree where Thich Nhat Hanh will talk about you know, pure, pure Buddhists don't get married, these monks. Why? Because they don't want to continue the wheel of samsara, the wheel of birth and death. They want to use all of their sexual energy solely for the sake of knowing reality in this moment. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. That's not what this is about. I'm just trying to tell you a practice. Um, the work of our hands, the sexual conduct is a similar phrase, the work of your hands is linked to sexuality in Masechet Berachot. The B says, what is the work of one's hands? You must conclude one's sons and daughters. And if you use the, the sexual energy in the proper way, what do you create? You create children. You create something that is that when man and, and woman come together, they create new life. They create a new creation. That's the opposite of the abuse of the Birit Mila, is, is being like God. And that's why it says about Adam Arishon, when Adam uh, had shit, it says, He gave birth in his image and his likeness, just like who? Just like Hashem. So you become mini creator when you tap into that. So I just want to bring everything full circle. We started off with, I have seen God and she is black. And now we're ending off with this. You know, it's all about the dichotomy of the masculine and the feminine. And we can talk all about the Eastern stuff, but what a beautiful blueprint and a gift that our tradition has given us, that we have a, a almost like a roadmap to how do we navigate the proper relationship of the masculine and the feminine. And that dance, that interplay, can lead us directly back to our Creator. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed, guys. Really, I felt the vibe tonight so elevated. And thank you guys for, for helping me, uh, you know, 
tap into that. Baruch. Yes, very nice. Nice selections, Mike. Appreciate it. Namaste, guys. Love you all. Have a great week. Good night. <laughs>